Jazz. Are we ready for podcast jazz? All right, let's try this again. Are we ready for Jazz Bastard Podcast 226? He's Mike. Uh, he's Pat. Do I get to answer that question? He said, are we ready? And I, you know, I, 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 I it was rhetorical, but if you feel obligated, do so. Are you in fact ready? I'm not, I'm not sure I am. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll do my best. I'll do are my you best. in the right mind space? Is your aura the correct color to kind of look at these 2021 releases? I, I think I'm going to call this episode speed dating. I think I decided it's like, when you're listening to like a brand new artist you've never heard before, it's this weird encounter, right? It's like, do I want to spend time with you? Is this, That's is this interesting. like, is the chemistry working here or are we just not meant to be? That's good. I think, uh, I think on the basis of this, I would give three uh, out of the four a second date. All right. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at four 2021 releases. Brandon Goldberg's In Good Time. A self-released album. Mark Zaleski's Our Time, reimagining Dave Brubeck on Origin Records. Now, Dave Medar, do you think, or Metter? What do you think? I don't know. Meter, Metter, Mater? I don't know. I, I don't know. His last name is M-E-D-E-R. Unamona Songs and Stories. Outside of Music, uh, a label that we discuss quite often. And finally, Andy Farber's Early Blue Evening on Artist Share. 2021 and Andy's most of these are combo recordings, but Andy's leading a big band artist share enable. God, I am having some trouble with my tongue tonight. Artist share is a label known for recording some big band recordings, including Marie Schneider's. So those are the four selections. Do you have a preference as to where we begin? Nope. I thought you might not. Okay. Well, let's just look at the <laughs> my notes here. It's fine. I, I don't either. You know, no agenda here. So Uh, let's start with, you brought Brandon Goldberg to the party. In fact, I think you picked all these. And he is another enfant terrible. I don't know how to say it. He's he's a, he's a young. He's like, he's, he's is he able to drive yet? Is he able to drink? I don't know. I think he can drive. I don't think he can drink legally. Um, is he able to drink and drive? How old do you have to be to drink and drive? Yeah. <laughs> he is officially a prodigy, as they say. Yeah. Uh, he's a piano player. And um, this is... Uh, Album features the late drum giant Ralph Peterson. Ralph passed away recently. Ralph's on this recording, and I believe you're hearing some at the very beginning of it. There's a little clip of, I believe, a phone message from him. Yeah. Bassist, oh my gosh, I can't say it. L. Curtis, saxophonist, Stacey oh Dillard. Oh my god, really? Stacey L. Is Curtis? <laughs> yeah, we're just going to call want- Mr. L. <laughs> Do you want me to do the names? <laughs> I think I can handle Trumpeter Josh Evans and stacks of bonus. Yes, we've, we've, had, we've talked about Josh before. Yeah, we, and yeah. then Antoine Dry guests on the final track, a duet of "Send in the Clowns." So uh, to uh, to give the bass player some love, I'm going to go out on a limb and say his name is pronounced Lucas 
Okay, yeah. That well, makes... Possibly Luquez, but I wonder if it's Lucas. I wonder if it's Lucas. Anyway, he deserves a lot. Yes, he does. I'm not trying to slag off the guy. I just, I'm, I just can't say his first. Probably can't say his last name. It's probably Curti or something. Looks like Curtis to me. So this is a small group, and uh, Brandon is—he's young. He's very, very young. He could be in uh, Dear Evan Hansen if he, and he might be might be uh, convincing there. I I don't know what I I I tend to like shy away from these. We did another guy that was a very young pianist, and I cannot think of his name right now. Many moons ago, but we've done a few prodigy, prodigy. I almost said prodigies. We've done a few prodigies. We did a, a female vocalist who was like fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, there, yeah, there was some young uh, piano player we did sometime back. So we've done a few of these, and and yeah, I can I can understand the the nervousness or the reluctance because the the question sometimes becomes not is this worth listening to, but it's like, let's take the age into account. It's the same thing that happens with late career players as well. It's like, oh my gosh, still breathing. <laughs> He's 97, uh, but look. And they, and they get a bump, and you know you don't want to be rude in either direction. So it's nice if we can, so I get why it could cause some trepidation, because you're like, we want to just think about the music, but it is kind of hard not to know that Brandon right. is very young. Yeah, it's a built-in narrative, and and I think that I've talked about this many times before that it is easier to sell music to an audience, especially in abstract music like jazz, with some kind of narrative, as opposed to saying, you know what, this is especially good of its kind. I don't have a special story to tell you. There's nothing, you know, distinctive or memorable about the session other than everybody was on their A game and it's better than the average session. People don't like, you know, it's like, what to make of that? But you know, as I was listening to Kenny Burrell's. Midnight Blue the other night, my second go round with the LP of that, and it's like, what do you want to say about it? I mean, it's Stanley Turrentine's whoever. It, it just they were they had a fucking good night. They had a good tune stack. It's a classic, but there's no one thing you can point to that as a narrative explains why Midnight Blue is better than 80 to 85 percent of of most hard bop sessions. You know, it's just it just happened to come out really good. So, uh, what do you think of Mr. Goldberg's effort here? I'm trying to. Uh, I, I want. I want to get his age right. I think we got him wrong. I, I think he's 15. Yeah. No. I, I. Right. Yeah. He is. He's now. He is now. He's able to ride every ride at, at Six Flags for sure. <laughs> I think his debut wants. album was released when he was 12. So. Yeah. Right, and now he's on a he's he's on a grown up piano stool, and it no dictionary. I God, Brandon, I'm sorry, Brandon, dude, I've got nothing against you. I'm just picking on you because I'm old and near death. Brandon is gonna grow up and find you and beat you with your own. I'm gonna tell you right now, Brandon could still beat the shit out of me. He doesn't have to grow anymore. He's fine. Yeah. um, Okay. All right. So thoughts about what the album is called? In good time. 
What do you think yeah. about this one? So there's a strategy here that I thought was smart, which was amazingly, Brandon is not just a player. Uh, he is somewhat some something of an arranger and a composer, and he puts his own compositions early, and I think that's smart. We sometimes talk about um, programming, and we've we've complained from time to time that you know folks do originals when maybe a better introduction to who they are and what they're about is to, you know, hear them take on, you know, some classics or, you know, just, you know, maybe go deeper into the repertoire, but to, to hear them, hear their take on, on other folks' stuff. So I think it was a canny choice on, on Mr. Goldberg's part to open the album with his compositions so that the rest of the album is just us listening to him engage with you know a variety of standards so i thought that was pretty clever i don't know i don't know if you noticed that or not but i I thought that was a good move on on his part it's a hell of an ensemble i have to say peterson is kind of a wild card in that he is he's not like art blakey-esque in the sense that like he's super loud or super dominating of the proceedings but he throws wrinkles in you know he's not just content to kind of be a timekeeper back there he's he, he, he will kind of mess with it, the proceedings. He interjects little bits or little phrases um, that with an ensemble full of talented people like this, you know, forces them to react. And, and uh, I think that's good. I think of him as kind of provocateur as a drummer in this instance. And I think that's, uh, I think that's useful here. this on the basis of this i would ask for a second date i will say that i like the date more for the ensemble than for anything in particular that um goldberg gets up to now that's not to say that i don't like him i I think he's fine i I think he's good but i thought this was a a pretty strong group and i thought there were some really good moments for josh evans and stacy dillard in particular I, i thought they they get off some nice solos on these on these numbers. So I don't know that I yet have a strong purchase on Brandon Goldberg, except to say that I think he's fully comfortable in this milieu. I mean, this is basically kind of like a, a hard bop setup, and um, and he's he's perfectly good here. I think he shines more on the other compositions than on his own. Authority, Circles, and Time, which start the album, those almost seem to feature other players more than him. Whereas by the time you get to uh, Monk's Dream, he kind of takes that out. Right, that one's a trio, right? So that features him a lot more directly. It's kind of interesting that they put him in this quintet setting because it is a little bit, I mean, nothing wrong with it, but it is you're, you're spending less time getting to know him, basically. Right.
I think he takes Monkstream out pretty far, and and I kind of like that. I thought that was good. If there's one cover that I almost wish wouldn't have been here, um, and it's not that his treatment of it is bad, it's just um, it, it's like obligatory to hear young people play someone to watch over me. And can we just ban that song for anyone under 25 in the future? It just feels like too on the nose or something to me. I don't know. Yeah, I've added a strict no pathos before puberty policy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, because that's the kind of, you know, I think Bill Evans, right, you know, bleeding all over that song. And yeah, I, you know, I, I think Goldberg's inter- interpretation is fine. But it, it just, I don't know. When I hear that song, I, I sort of feel like there's a kind of aching pathos to that number that... Well, he's specifically taking on this idea that, okay, I'm going to play a ballad, and he also does Send in the Clowns, yes. which I've got mixed feelings about as a song anyway. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, it's I'm going to show you that I can emote like a 50-year-old. And it's like, do you really need to take that particular challenge on? Because you really can't. And it, right. it's just not, we're not looking for that. And that's okay. I mean, you know, it just, there's some, you know, I don't know that Clark Terry ever emoted when he was 70. Like, you know, I mean, some players just don't have that gear, but right. it's just an odd challenge to take on at that age. You know, that I'm going to take on this really emotive ballad. And it's like, well, I didn't mind, you know, I, I, I think, I think young players especially get, producers or someone or maybe they choose to do someone to watch over me because it sounds you know here's a child or a young person playing uh, a right. genre of music associated with maturity and 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 so it sounds like a kind of you know it's it's a it's a gesture right yeah. um, I don't it, to me it always sounds like it's like a plea almost you know a plea from a young person someone to watch over me um, right and maybe that's not how you know Goldberg is playing it here that's fine um, sending the clowns is altogether more problematic if you know the lyrics fortunately I think it's the it's really a feature for the guest trumpeter uh, Antoine dry and so I'm less bothered by that song because um, I feel like Goldberg is more accompaniment there than than featured voice on that particular number. But yeah, I just feel like I, I hear someone to watch over me on young jazz prodigy recordings more than I should. And I'm like, let's just, can we just stop this? You don't get to play this until you're 25. I mean, right. I, it's, it's well, just, <laughs> prefer I you wait till you're 35, but, but you sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so Sun in the Clowns didn't bother me as much, mainly because I felt like it's the trumpeter's voice that I'm really listening to there right. more. Um, but, yeah, in general, I thought I'd like to hear this guy, and I'd like to hear more by him. And, and you know, I can set the age aside and say he, he's good in the setting. He holds his end up, let's put it that way. Yeah, right. It, it, to me, I guess it's, it's one of these things where, this is a, especially this idiom, is extraordinarily matured and codified. Right. The, the song standards he plays, I mean, I was looking up, like, Stella by Starlight, I think it's a fine tune. I love Miles Davis's version of it. You know, when Miles does it, he's in the 50s, and it, the song is like 10, 15 years old at that point. And it, it had some relevance to the popular understanding at that time. It was a familiar point of view and now doing it it, it's it's purely in this very hermetic jazz tradition it's no longer 
the currency of an average human being coming to your concert. And it's like, why are you doing that, kiddo? I mean, what did you grow up listening to? I guess you're not entirely growing up, but you know what? Play me something from your life. Play me something from your culture, not from the culture of 60, 70 years ago. It's a good song. I mean, I don't think it's a deathless song, but it's a fine song. But like, what's it doing here? Or like the Monk tune, which I think he does a fine job with. It's like this point. If you're a piano player in the jazz idiom and you play Monk, you've told me nothing. Hmm. Everybody fucking plays Monk. Everybody. I'm waiting for the next all harmonica version of every tune Monk did. <laughs> you know, I mean, God, it just is, it's, and I love Monk. I mean, he's fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but he's become, his, his stuff has become a huge cliche. It's just, you know, God, it's like, Okay, I mean, we're almost at the point where I don't like these songs because so many people have been told that, okay, Monk is okay. Monk is canonized. Everybody can play Monk. Monk is safe. Play some Monk. And it's like that wasn't the point at the time. And I love Monk's recordings. and I love many covers of him. But if you want to tell me something about yourself as a piano player, you don't play Monk. Because every fucking jazz piano player on God's green earth Place Monk. So what, I guess I'm going to disagree with you slightly yeah. there because okay. I think he, he he takes Monk's dream out. I, he I don't does think to some he, degree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it's a bad performance of that tune. I just think it's got less information about who he is than it could because it's Monk, and it's it's not Monk's dream. It's not the most common Monk. You know, no. it wasn't around midnight. Thank God. So I mean, there's something to be said for that. I think it's a good performance of it. I mean, you know, it's just. Again, and this is nitpicking to some degree, but it's like, what if you're trying to speed date your listener and see if they want to set up a relationship with you? You know, <laughs> that's just like, I like long walks on the beach. Well, no, fuck. Okay. Let's find out what makes you a distinctive human being because that tells me nothing. You know, a good, a good model might be, we talked about one of his albums some time ago, Jamie Cullum who is, I guess, in his late 20s or 30s by now, um, but was another said, guy. But yeah. He's how old is he? No, I'm, I'm bullshit. Oh, you don't know. Never I, mind. I thought you might know. Um, I think he's in his late 20s or early I'm gonna 30s. I'm going to Google but, him. You know, yeah, he, he you know, was recording in his early 20s. And, 42. You know, 42, Holy my friend. Holy shit, wow. But he's still well, five foot five. He's not grown any further. We, we're, we're just getting older by the second. Um, yeah. But, you know, he would, he, you know, he, he reached... You know, he would play some stuff relatively contemporary to spice up his, his early albums, you know. So, you know, there'd be some classics, you know, there'd be some standards. There'd be stuff from the from the gas, but there would also be, you know, um, he, he would throw other, like, more pop-oriented tunes in, yeah. more recent tunes that told you a little bit about who he was and what he was interested in. I can't remember the pop song he covered that I liked so much, but, you know, that might be a... That might be a route here, you know, to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover this Billie Eilish song. That, that, that would tell me something. I, it's I pretty guess. chill, uh, so that I mean, certainly I fits in that jazz idiom, all right, because she's, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know her music at all, but I'm just, you know, right, yeah, that oh yeah, absolutely. You, you know, here's, here's my favorite, here's my favorite Megan Thee Stallion album. You know, there you song, go, and, you know, and right. I guess the point is, that right now, with people like Eilish and, and with uh, Lana Del Rey or whatever, I mean. There are some contemporary artists who've got a pretty good profile who are not miles removed from the old Chanteuse style. I mean, they're, they're singing songs, that some of which would be very easy to translate into jazz terms. Mm. And, you know, again, I'm not saying you have to go out and listen and get into this person, you know, but 
there's that sense of this very insular, static tradition. And I mean, again, Still by Starlight's a fine song. I wouldn't put it in my top 200, but it's, it's a good one. But it, it the whole point was when it was done as a jazz standard was creative jazz musicians picked something out of the air, out of the popular consciousness, and did something to it we call jazz. They didn't go to a class and were taught that this is what somebody 50 years ago did, and you should do it too. So yeah, I don't want to go on about that, but but you know I I think it was a little bit it was interesting choice. I mean, a couple moments where the group sounds a little second quartet-ish. Nefertiti. I mean, seriously, yeah, how often yeah. do we get that as a cover? Yeah, I mean, there was a period in the seventies when it was actually fairly common. I think it's a gorgeous tune. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's it, a pretty on the nose version. Yeah, and it's kind of an odd model because, let's face it, that group, Ron and Herbie were the least kind of spotlit right. members of it, you know? And right. it's not that the piano has nothing to do in the great quintet, second great quintet, but it, quintet. Yeah, so I, at times I feel like, in terms of, again, getting to know this guy, do I want to listen to Mr. Goldberg play the piano? The quintet format, it, it's neat, but it, it is a little bit, puts him in the shade at times, and probably... Getting, and maybe his first one was that way. Maybe his first album was a trio album, but a little, little harder to get to know him in this format. And then certain tunes, as I said, that, you know, if you're kind of in the second great quintet's area, are you going to be able to, to make a fingerprint that distinctive from a Herbie Hancock? Is that really where you want to kind of strut your stuff? I don't know. So I did some of the choices here, some of the repertoire choices. I wasn't that into a couple of the ballads. I mean, I think that the great danger of listening to a music that is in danger of stagnation and being kind of frozen in amber is the sense that, are we going through the motions here? You know, is this felt anymore? Is this touching me emotionally or is it just doing what has been done before? And so a couple of those ballads, I'm like, oof, not right now. I want to hear the ebullience of youth. I don't want you to pretend to have the profundity of age because, you know, nobody does at that age and that's fine you're not expected to you know you've got something to bring to the table that's specific to where you are in life but don't maybe don't do the stuff that isn't anyway other thoughts about in good time is that the name of it well like i said um i i'm i'm willing to i'm willing to date again uh i'd like to see where he's at and you know again i don't know you know the other thing you know the thing about the um the choices. I don't know what his background is. I don't know, you know, what his uh, training or schooling is. You know, maybe these are songs he's been cutting his teeth on for a while, and so it seemed like, all right, I've got something to say about these because th- this is the this is the curriculum or this is the plan. It, it is, and, and that's that's the frustration of jazz in this this period of time, right? Is that it? They're still teaching. Play this song that Miles Davis played. It's like. You know what? Who wasn't playing that song 30 years ago? Fucking Miles Davis. Right. That's not what jazz is. You don't right. play what somebody played 50 years ago. But yeah, I don't want. It's not. It's not Brandon's fault. And Brandon, we're not trying to crumb you. We're not really going to date you. This is a metaphor. I want to be clear. You're safe. You're in your safe spot. We're not after you, dude. It's okay. But but yeah. Um. So I'm. You know, thinking about it. You're, you're I, I would a little like more on the fence. I'd like to hear him a little bit more. I mean, at some level, I guess, finally, it's, and I couldn't do this. I mean, most human beings can't. Right. But but if you're a prodigy, 
at some level that you can play this music competently at a very young age is no longer surprising because it's been so codified. And that's what prodigies are good at, is taking something that has been figured out and figuring it out faster because the path has been laid down. And that doesn't mean you're not going to have a great, you know, you can't have a great career in music. I mean, obviously, we, Julian Lodge or whatever, you know, it happens. But just to be able to do it, if you are really high level music talent right now, you can think and you love it. You've got to have some interest in it. You can figure out jazz. I mean, it's there are lesson plans. There are, you know, systems. There are known like the second great quintet, known points of points of excellence that you can you can map out. And so just doing it is really finally not enough because it can be done now. I mean, you couldn't just, you know, at, at age 14 or 13, play great bebop in 1942 because people were still figuring it out. But you can now. It's just that's not enough. What we're looking for is somebody that's got a point of view, something specific to them that gives them a distinction because there are a number of people that can do it. So anyway, I, I feel like I'm picking on Brandon's like, I think it was a fine album, but anyway, I'm skeptical of young people. I don't like young people. Let's just summarize Patrick hates the young. <laughs> He's near death. He regret you know, resents people that aren't. All right. Do you want to move on to the other time album? Is that? Yeah, why not? That sounds fine. So you gave me this is a little bit of patnip. Mark Zaleski's album of covers of Dave Brubeck songs. Apparently, Mark went to the Dave Brubeck Institute. I didn't know there was such a thing. At the time, he was doing imitations of, of more or less the Brubeck albums. And Brubeck told him, nope, you've got to be a little bit more creative than that. Don't just imitate what, what I've done. And so he said it took him a while to get together to... Uh, really kind of rethink these standards and the result of that was our time reimagining Dave Brubeck. This is a two sax lineup. Mark plays alto, uh, John Bean plays tenor saxophone, Glenn Zaleski plays piano. All right, you, you tell us who the guitarist is there. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Mark Cocheo. Very good. Yes, I, yes, plays guitar. Uh, Danny Willer plays bass, and the drummer is Oscar Sushinek. Very good. Okay. And again, I, my, I could be totally wrong. You could be yeah. wrong. Oscar's going to come by. God damn you. Accent of the wrong syllable there, buddy. So, yeah, a group that has two saxes and a guitar, so it's a little different from Brubeck's famous quartet. And I'd say the song stack is includes some famous tunes by Brubeck, and then some that are a little bit lesser known. I don't know the Golden Horn or Softly William Softly or anyone's top five best-known Brubeck tunes. So what did you think of this? I liked it. Would definitely date Mark again on the strength of this outing. Maybe we need to retire the dating metaphor. It's going to freak people out. Get your out. hand off Mark's fly, you pervert. God, that's disgusting. Right. Okay. Um, 
so uh, yeah, I, I did like this. Um, you know, I was a little nervous with the start of Blue Rondo a la Turk because I was like, well, this sounds right on the fucking nose. It's like what reimagining is happening here because it's just like it's just, right. It begins very very much like yeah. You know. The, the, you know, and I was like, okay. And I, I don't think it gets that far out, but they do a thing that I love and that I would love to hear. Like when I heard this, I was like, hmm, I, it got my mind moving. Uh, so they harmonize, um, uh, John Bean and Mark Zaleski do, um, on their respective horns, uh, as they're playing the melody, you know, da 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 da, you know, and those harmonizations, that is lovely as shit. I just thought, wow, that's that's really cool. I really like that. I like that they are doing that and they're playing it at that ferocious speed. And I thought that's a really now that's a really lovely reimagining. And I suddenly had this image of like you know a, a big band or something playing Blue Rondo a la Turk. Right. Reimagined the nightmare of trying to get like you know. <laughs> a brass section and a woodwind section to play that shit that tight so that it sounds, you know, with harmonies and everything. I just, I thought that was lovely. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in my favorite cut is, um, Fujiyama. I love that song. I think it's spectacularly beautiful. It might be my favorite Brubeck song in terms of just melody. I mean, it's just ravishingly beautiful. And I think uh, Zaleski is brave to do that number, you know, because if, if Brubeck knew one thing, it was how to spot talent. And uh, he always had ferociously talented alto players to do that number when he played it, you know? So you're going up against some fucking heavyweights. The idea that you're going to play Fujiyama, you know, that's like a Desmond landmark, you know? That's Right, yes, it's kind of... <laughs> it's like, dude's got stones to take that song on. Um, and, and I thought he did fine on it. Like, it, it didn't make me forget Brubeck, but I thought it was significantly... It was enough different, and, and he has enough of a different tone you know, he doesn't have quite the same limpid tone that Desmond does, but then no one has that tone. That it was different enough that I was like, okay, this, you know, this is a reimagination. And, and again, just, you know, kudos for being that brave to take that on because it's just him and the piano player, you know, and I guess a little bit of bass there, you know. But there's, there's nowhere to hide on that song. You, you really kind of have to bring your A game. So very brave for him to do that. In general, I like this. I, I, I thought this was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the the bravest thing is just basically an alto player covering Brubeck songs and dealing with that that you know weird totem that is Paul Desmond with the group right. and that very distinctive approach. And you know these guys. The, the guitar is a stroke of genius, by the way. Yes, I think absolutely right. It's good texture. Thank you. 
so I, you know, it took me, I think the first time I listened to it, I did not like it because both the alto and the tenor player will take things out. Sometimes they get harsh sounds and it's just trying to readjust my mind to like yeah. saxophones playing this music without sounding like the super limpid, right. soothing Desmond and without that special contrast between pounding Brubeck and floating Desmond, right? That, that tension that made the group great. Just the way Miles Davis was always brilliant about posing himself against other players and making it kind of a, a mobile that, that everybody was in tension and complimented each other rather than being the same kind of player. And, uh, yeah, but I, I think it did grow on me too. I mean, I, at one point there, there's a sound of at least three horns. I don't know if that's double tracking or somebody's doing a Rosh and rolling Kirk. Where is it? Um, on, on square dance, I guess it is where there's multiple saxes and that's, you know, it, it's a fairly, I don't know. It, it's, Mostly they cover stuff that is not. They obviously, Blue Ronda La Turk is one of the most famous songs Brubeck did. But mostly it's stuff that's a little bit lesser known. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Golden Horn. They almost have a hip hop beat there. Yep. The, sax, the soprano sax sound is is pretty raw. I think the piano solo there is quite interesting, and it doesn't, you know, they, the pianist, is, just like the saxophone player, does not make the mistake of imitating the model. I mean, Brubeck is very easily imitated, as is Desmond. Maybe not to imitate perfectly, but just, you know, there's a very distinctive style. So, yeah, I, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, there are there's a, the commercial appeal of Brubeck's albums and the sound of Desmond and Brubeck and all that. And then there is Brubeck, the composer, who I do think to some degree is undervalued. I mean, I think he yeah. wrote a lot of interesting tunes yeah. that don't have to be performed a la Brubeck, right. but hold up better than, I, I don't know, a lot of jazz composers. So it's kind of cool to hear those tunes and some of the lesser known ones. I mean, obviously, I was hoping for something from the USA album, which is... <laughs> My odd favorites, like, come on, give me the adventures of a Boy Scout. But, but you know, <laughs> that's what it was. They, they they picked some good ones and did a great job. And yeah, I went back to the impressions of Japan where that um, tune you're talking about uh, came from, the, the the beautiful closing tune. And it's like, yeah, that's just, wow, that's kind of magical. They also get uh, props for, you know, Glenn Zaleski plays uh, electric piano on at least one or two numbers. And that's a great way to, to change up, to reimagine Dave Brubeck. Because you're yeah. just not going to have those clunky chords. And Zaleski's just a much more of a finger picker anyway. He's, he's much more, I'm talking about Glenn Zaleski, the, the right. leader's brother. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, he's, he's much more, you know, he's not a pounder like, uh, like Brubeck. Um, and so the, the electric piano is a nice choice and it's, it gives, other textures and again paired with the guitar is a really nice way to sort of reconceive these numbers it's 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 smart well conceived yeah i think they found the right distance from imitation and deconstruction i mean it's not we're going to take this just as an excuse to kind of just pull these songs apart and kind of semi-ignore them but it's not 
you know, a, a Brubeck Quartet cover band. You know, it's somewhere right in the sweet middle. So, yeah, it took a while to grow on me, but once it did, I said, you know, these guys are really doing a good job here. And I like it intrinsically as a group, but I also like it as a reminder that, you know, again, it's just like Brubeck wrote a lot of songs you can go to. I'm not saying that it's the only thing you should ever play, but maybe it's interesting to cover a Brubeck tune as, as, as some of the gas stuff that just gets done to death. All right, where should we go next? The last small group album is by Dave Madar. Meter, 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 I don't know. Another piano player. And his trio includes Marty Jaffe on bass and Michael Piolet, maybe? Oh, wait, here, I'll look it up here. Let's see. Uh, Marty Jaffe on bass. Yeah, I'd say Michael Piolet on drums. Philip Dizak. Dizak. On trumpet, trumpet, right. And then Miguel Zinon, who we've talked about before. Yeah, uh, well-known alto player. So uh, a trio with a couple of horns, making it, if math serves me, a quintet. And, um, yeah, this is a interesting album. It's called Unamuna Songs and Stories. It's on Outside of Music. What do you think of this one? Is this another one that, that passes the test, or...? No, I don't think I want another date on the basis of this. Sorry, Dave, it's not you, it's me. Yeah, this one left me a little uh, cold. Nothing wrong with the playing. Uh, I was interested in reading the backstory. Um, you know, we did that podcast some time back about political jazz, and at some level, that's, that's what the leader wants to do. He, he's, he feels that this is music for a particular moment, and more power to him, that's fine. Um, this sort of felt like it had basically two modes, song after song. Um, there's a lot of meditative, thoughtful stuff here. Meditative kind of being the, the operative word. There's a couple of uh, solo pieces which are yeah, entitled right. Meditation. Yeah. Most of the songs feel like they're in this meditative bag. Some of them build in the middle. Um, the one that's a little funkier, a little brighter in some ways is Augusto's Dilemma from the get-go. But um, And I guess if ever I would leave you, it feels kind of meditative well, in a kind of major okay. key way, you know. Well, Century um, Rag, though. I mean, I think that's... Well, I was going to... I'm saving okay, that. I'm uh, saving okay, okay, okay. Never mind, never mind. I'm in there. But yeah, it feels a lot of these are just kind of meditative and contemplative. And then the ones that differ tends to, you know, have building moments in the middle, which often are features for the trumpeter or Miguel Zanon, right?
Century Rag is my favorite song off of the wildly underrated Only Leader Date by Percy Heath. And it's my favorite song off that album. And I think that tune is just fucking awesome. I just love that song to death. And it's a total change of pace here. And I'm so glad he did it. I mean, I'm just so glad that someone decided to do that song. I believe Percy Heath's A Love Song is his only leader date. I think I'm right about that. I might be. We should do it. It's, it's such a great, great album, and it's mic'd for bass brilliantly. Anyway, it's just a slightly funkier version of the song than uh, Percy's. Uh, and, you know, as you would expect, the bass is just mic'd really well on that, and it sounds wonderful, and it's my favorite cut on the whole album. And that was the one that almost made me ask for a second date. I was like, oh, really like this song, really like this song. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, uh, it felt like, the, the, there's nothing wrong with the playing. The playing is good. It just didn't touch me. Like this, this sort of mode didn't. Because I reach. feel like it was trying to. I mean, in some ways, yes. it seemed the most emotionally. Yes, I feel like it's fraught almost in, in places. Right. Yeah. Very uh, almost uh, melodramatic. Not fair, but it's very romantic and surging and. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it didn't reach me. And like I said, that's why I said. Dave, maybe it's me. You know, it's just, you know, I'm having a bad day. I just couldn't get to that. But yeah, it, it was not, it just wasn't for me. I don't know. I just, hmm. And the playing is fine. His playing feels a little less. The voices I remember more tend to be the horn players here. It's not that he's bad. He's terrific. I mean, he's a fine player. But maybe it's by the nature of the exercise and these sort of building motifs that the, the horns seem to stand out a little bit more for me. I don't know. We have been trained by Rudy Van Gelder to like ignore the piano and, and quintet. You know, I don't maybe know that it's that. injured quite that extremely, but there's that yeah. sense that yeah, you know, because it's one thing about the the classic blue notes is a sense that the the horns are just there, vivid and palpable and present, and the piano somewhere in the back in the corner, and they're fine. I guess I I like this album better than you did, but it is. I don't know that it's Jarrett-esque, but there is that sense of it is a little bit more romantic, a little bit more hard on sleeve. And there are moments I was wondering, because like Exile, it's one of those songs that doesn't go anywhere harmonically, it just kind of hovers. And I know, I mean, both of us can get impatient with those. I think especially you, but, but you know, both of us sometimes feel like, well, it'd be nice if I had a little bit more of a, a forward direction to it. Yeah. Um, I love Century Rag. I felt like Augusto's Dilemma had maybe a little monk DNA in it. I mean, I feel like the the melodies as as a songwriter were a little bit stronger. Now, I gotta say, I can't necessarily line them up with some of the politicized titles. I look for religion in war. It's both yeah. just awkward as a phrase and doesn't seem to me, in my crude understanding of the world, related that much to the music I heard. So, yeah, I mean, some of that's just a little bit odd. And I guess I got to admit, I just listened to the album without Well, he speaks, he speaks feelingly elsewhere about the importance of Miguel Unamuno, Miguel de Unamuno for him. And Unamuno was a kind of fraught. He, he was a guy in a weird time who lived in Civil War Spain who was against the excesses of the anarchists and then was later against the excess excesses of, you know, the Frankists, the Franco. And he was kind of like a man alone in time who basically hated all political parties um, at a certain point and was sort of a voice for decency and humanity in a world of just, you know, extremism. And I don't know if that's 
what our leader is calling on, if he's sort of interested in that aspect of Uno Uno's political identity, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, the right, story I, behind some of the songs, if you read it, sounds like that's where he's headed. Yeah, I, I got to admit, listening to it didn't seem particularly programmatic to me. But, you know, again, yeah, some of that, when, when you're dealing with such an abstract form that if you have the narration with it and the explanation with it, you can maybe find these themes, but they don't necessarily present themselves if you don't or you're not thinking about them. And I, I, I got to admit, I was not thinking too hard about the political content, uh, so, so to say, of, of the music. And right. I, I got to admit, Miguel, I... He is extraordinarily well-known by jazz standards, right? And, and I've never – his solo stuff, I don't know, as a, as a saxophonist, I, he is somebody that does not particularly touch me sometimes. I, I think it's he's obviously in, in impeccable technique, and but I don't know that I necessarily vibrate to his frequency. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think that there were some things to say about the, the album in that some of it had memorable tunes – and certainly I felt like emotionally this was the album trying the hardest and taking the yeah. most risks. Whether they landed is a different issue. It's it's the most hard on its sleeve of, of Absolutely. all the recordings. And so that makes it difficult for me to not resonate to it, but I just I just didn't. Yeah. I, I, I you know, you talked about the melodies and I can't place any of these songs oh, okay. um, the closest I can get would be Augusto's Dilemma which is a little funkier it's it's the one outlier and you know it felt like an outlier to me compared to the other melodies that I could quarter, I could you know connect to it maybe a little bit more But again, not dissing the players. I mean, the players are fantastic. I mean, the technique is great. I'm, I'm just not moved by this. I'm not, I didn't connect to it. So, like I said, it's not you, Dave. It's me. <laughs> okay. I'm sure Dave is nursing a broken heart even as we speak. He's I'm like, sure Whatever, he doesn't dude. care. I mean, yeah, he's like, yeah. yeah that's fine. I, you know, I get it. Okay. Well, and so these were all, these three albums we just discussed are all kind of in this quintet sextet mold they are post-bop jazz roughly speaking i say that you know dave is maybe a little jared-esque you know maybe looking a little bit of that music from the 70s mm. obviously zaleski's looking at brubeck but trying and to some degree updating brubeck's sound. he's not not really playing in the cool jazz idiom even though he's playing tunes associated with it and Goldberg, you know, I'd say that a lot of those moves in that in that group remind me, at least glancingly, of Miles Davis's second-rate quintet. So our final selection is very different. It's a big band album.
its kind of compass points are earlier in the music. So Andy Farber is a saxophone player, a ranger, and a composer. And one of the weird things about this album we can talk about is, is that he's able to compose songs that remind me, at least, of other composers' songs without being those songs, but they seem a lot like those songs. Yeah. And then Adam Birnbaum on piano, Jennifer Vincent bass, Alvester Garnet drums, James Chirello guitar, and then a whole bunch of other people. I mean, it's a big band. Uh, I, I have, have the names. I have okay. the names. Okay. Do you want to run them down or we, do we have time? I'll I run them down. Okay. I'll do it. I'll do it quickly. Adam Birnbaum piano. Did you get Alvester and James and Jennifer? You did. James Zoller trumpet. Bruce Harris trumpet. Uh, Brian Pareshi, um, Pareski, Pareshi. He may also play trumpet, but he has a flugelhorn feature here. Um, Godwin Lewis, alto sax. Carl Maragi. I hope I have that right. On Barry, um, Dan Block uh, on clarinet. He may also play other reed instruments. Lance Bryant, uh, tenor. And then the trumpeters, Alfonso Horn and Sean Edmonds. Trombonists, Wayne Goodman, Art Baron, and Dion Tucker. My, my, my. It's a big band. I did some homework. I did did some homework. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, and uh, he gets a comment from Wilfried Wald. Yeah. He was almost on one of our podcasts, but wasn't. He said that Farber (laughs) doesn't recreate specific existing charts or records, nor does he slavishly strive to make everything sound as contemporary as possible. He's found a viable and exciting middle path expanding the legacy of Duke and the Count, rather than strictly recreating their work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think of this effort? This is Early Blue Evening, a terrible title. It's an awful title. Yeah, yeah. that's it's just like literally the SEO just went in the corner and strangled itself. It, just, I, I just, it, it seems to have nothing to do whatsoever with, with, with this album. Uh, on Artist Share 2021, did you like Early Blue Evening? I was struck with the fact that I did like this so much. Um, and especially because, you know, uh, Farber's a Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra guy. Um, he's connected to that. He's, he's plugged into that mafia. unit. And we have oh, unit, okay. that mafia. And we have from time <laughs> to time, you know, bitched and moaned about the, the sort of museum aspect of jazz that sometimes seems associated with that particular project. Um, and I think this, this effort escapes that. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, originals, right? Originals that sound like they're in the idiom, that sound capably as if they're in the idiom of big band. And secondly, my God, these players are really, really fucking good. It's, it's right out of the Ellington school of, you know, melody with big, big soloists doing what they do. And there's some great solos on this. I mean, there's just some filthy solos. Great trumpet with mute work. The clarinetist gets off several ridiculous solos. Uh, this is just a lot of fun. It's a, it's a big band, which is really nice, big. It's a well arranged sort of pillowy cushion around some really fine jewelry in the form of solos here. And as far as I can recall, no drum solo. So I was happy about that, too. (laughs) Um, I just, I like the shit out of this. I thought it was just, I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. (laughs) ¶¶ 
And, you know, and so there are some. I mean, it's not all originals. There are definitely covers here. But I loved the covers. I thought the two that I thought were wonderful um, were The Holiday Makers. I thought that was brilliant. I really I thought that's a fun song to cover. And his arrangement of Theme from the Odd Couple is fucking brilliant. I heard that, and I, it just, just I thought it was wonderful. I, I just thought, that's a great idea. And I guess maybe, what not that a Neil Hefti song or something? I don't know, but shit, I just thought it was terrific. I yeah, really somebody that. that's from a jazz background. I mean, that's kind of a unofficial jazz standard, right? Yeah, but you never hear it. And I was like, this is a great, you know, deep dip into the thing, into the into the, the canon. Yep, it's Neil Hefty. Mm-hmm. I looked it up. And just some lovely solos in that. I, I just, I thought the solos throughout are, are really uh, fiery and engaged and passionate. And the group is really tight. Um, I just, I liked this a lot. You know, there's got to be a place for this in, in the canon where someone can dip into this part of the tradition and play it and, you know, have originals that sit alongside that tradition and, you know, do it capably and well. And I, I just, I don't feel like this is museum work. I feel like this is, I think it's good. I liked it. I, I would listen to uh, another recording by Andy Farber in a heartbeat. And I normally don't like, you know, we've complained about this stuff before, but this didn't bother me. I don't know. I think it was the, the quality of the soloing and, you know, the arrangements are, you know, quite, quite lush and lavish. I hope you liked it. I did. You know, I, I guess I've got more mixed feelings. It, it's, this weird thing where he's imitating these models and he's getting so incredibly close, but he isn't just covering their stuff. And it, that's, it's good, but like Portrait of Joe Temperley. not Harry Carney doing this queen suite, but it's so close, you know? Yeah. It's like, man, this isn't, this isn't that, but it's like a second cousin to that that could maybe pose as that, you know, from a distance. So there's that weird aspect of it. I mean, like at one point, a saxophone soloist just does Phil Woods. I mean, it's like, I don't know what I've heard anybody that I can think of recently who is imitating Phil Woods instead of like Greg Osby or whatever. And so at some level, it's just like the models they're taking are people who just aren't quite the, the jazz major models that we hear where everybody's sort of like a Wayne Shorter or Mark Turner or Greg Osby. They're, they're, they're imitating, like I said, uh, Phil Woods or, you know, the early blue evening is basically a Benny Carter song, you know, and the, yeah. the saxophone player on that, imitates Benny Carter to some degree.
I'm not saying they're copying them exactly, but they're very much in that style, you know, which you don't hear that often, which is kind of nice. And I mean, there's moments that just feed into my endorphins because especially when they're doing like the Duke Ellington stuff, it's like, yeah, I love Duke Ellington. So, and you don't hear, you certainly don't hear groups very often that are playing in that idiom or, or imitating those musicians. So it's kind of this novelty to it without it being just literally we are playing a song from the Duke Ellington sound, you know, book. It's just enough different that it doesn't seem like just pure recreation or as he said, museum, you know. So it's an interesting project. I I mean I, I don't tell me what to do. I'd say the tenor is is both vigorous and maybe a little out of tune. You know, I mean, there, there's little moments here where it gets a little bit rough, and I think it's just one thing you just can't have anymore is a big band album by a big band that, that the people in it make their living playing in that group, right? It just doesn't happen. Right. You just, they have to not, do other stuff. It's yeah. not economically viable. They aren't traveling together and playing 100 shows a year. They, they don't know each other's moves like the back of their hands. You know, it's kind of very, very talented, high-functioning musicians brought together on a project to play music they love, but they've only been together for a few days in a given year. And so there's not quite that amazing, organic unity you get with the very best of the big bands. But it, it, it's fun. I, I don't know, the odd couple for me, I love that tune. It seemed to maybe just let, it was great to hear it. It just seemed maybe slightly heavy or something. I don't know. I, I Maybe I've just got the original too much in my head, and it, I, I'm wanting it to be too close to it. And so I'm not being fair to the song, the version of the song. I think it's cool they did it, because, yeah, it's exactly something. I mean, there was a period where the language of jazz was more or less the language of popular music and TV shows and movies. Yeah. And, again, it's just at least it's it's something a little different. I mean, The Odd Couple of Nothing Else is only 50 years old. Instead of Cellar by Starlight, it's 70. So it's a little closer. You know, it's like, that's the memory of my early childhood, but it's not before I was born. So, right. you know, it's, it's there's there's that aspect to it that, and again, it's this music sitting around that there's no reason you couldn't play this. Why not play it? It's more or less a jazz song. So, yeah, have at it. That's that's kind of fun. So, yeah, I, I mean, I liked it. I, You know, there's always this question of why big band? What, what's what's the goal there? What are you doing? And there's a couple answers to it. And, you know, this is kind of, well, we're going to play music in India. You just don't hear much anymore because you don't really hear a lot of groups that are doing, especially Ellington. I mean, I think Basie, I feel like, is every fucking junior high school jazz band is playing Neil Hefty charts, right? It's kind of the basic what's considered a quote-unquote big band music ever since the 50s and 60s that's kind of the frozen in time theory of what big band is but ellington is is a little bit trickier and more challenging and also more idiosyncratic and you just don't you know junior high school bands generally don't play that so when, when he's doing in that mode even if like as the holiday makers i mean man I, who did that i didn't realize it wasn't a cover it, it just seems like it's 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 a cop of kind of ellington is fucking around 60s phase where you know he comes up with a phrase the drummer gets a shuffle beat going and somehow the performance is better than average because it's ellington
It's just like it, right. it comes off because his band never really fails. You know, it just almost never flames out. It's, it's always going to be good or better than good. Uh, but you can tell it's like, it's like one of those songs off his, his album with Coleman Hawkins where it's like, yeah, Coleman Hawkins is a great musician and you thought about the session five minutes before meeting him, right? You know, you just, you just kind of got together and did it. <laughs> but you didn't really give a fuck. This is really offhand. Yeah. So I, I liked it. You know, I, I don't know that I'm as strongly in favor of it as opposed to the Dave Madar album. I, I think I might be a little bit closer on those two, but mm. it was just good to hear something. You know, pointing back to models like Benny Carter, Harry Carney, even Phil Woods, uh, rather than the usual post-bop landmarks for people. So that's what I thought about it. Are we all done thinking Groovy. about it? Okay. Done thinking. All done. have any pop matters today uh let's see what's in the recently added bin blah 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 uh, lately i've been listening to i don't know if you've ever listened to any of them you ever listened to any low low the group i don't think so yeah low they are uh slow core however you want to call it ambient pop Experimental rock, slowcore. I've I've had I had one of these. I think I had things be lost in the fire for a long time, and I've recently listened to Double Negative and Drums and Guns are in heavy rotation at the moment. Um, don't know what to say about it except I kind of like it. Um, need to listen to it more to really have a strong opinion. Um, more peppy stuff that I've picked up recently that I like. I've got Queens of the Stone Ages rated R. So what is, I've heard of them for years. What is their idiom? I mean, what do they sound like? They're like up-tempo hard rock. Um, okay. I don't, I don't, I mean, how would one describe them? They're just hard rock. Nowadays, people, of course, call that alternative. I, I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> the album that sort of put them on the map was Songs for the Deaf. Um, uh, and I have that. Rated R was from a couple years before, and so I, I picked up the deluxe edition, which has some live stuff. It's just hard rock. I don't know. Um, I think uh, I think Lou Reed or someone of that ilk was going to record with them for a while, or did record with them, if, I, if memory serves. And then another band that you probably have heard of, The Thermals. Uh, all their songs no. sound the same. <laughs> I've never heard uh, of The Thermals. You never okay. heard of The Thermals? No. Uh, the Thermals are up-tempo rock, very kind of screamy, yelpy vocalist. If you hear him once, you know his voice immediately. Um, and I recently started listening to Desperate Ground from 2013, which he's, he's just kind of got this yelpy, you know, it's 10 songs, 25 minutes. It's, you know, how rock albums used to be. It's, it's, it's kind of what you're looking for in a rock album. Fast, quick, hooky songs, lots of fun. And then, uh, I don't know if you've heard of these people, but, you know, in my ongoing effort to understand things that I don't understand, Corinne Bailey Ray, have you heard about her? 
keep going. I think maybe. Kind of an R&B artist. She's been active. I got her first album. Just digesting that. Uh, and also Caitlin Aurelia Smith's The Kid from 2017. Also digesting those albums. That'll mean something to some of our listeners. Sort of on the R&B hip-hop area of the kitchen uh i also got wildflower by the avalanches so yeah these are all i'm just trying to understand stuff um a colleague of mine um teaches hip-hop and rap and religion and i've uh, been uh talking to him about some stuff and trying to just get a better understanding of, of some things and so dipping my toe i've been doing this for a long time dipping my toe into the better regarded albums of which there are a zillion uh in this genre so i'm just trying to broaden my ears and get smarter about stuff so yeah that's 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 what i've been listening to a little bit how about you Wow, well, I cannot match it, match that for all those contemporary references. I did see a couple of uh, performances recently. So I went to Dance Kaleidoscope, which is a scrappy little modern dance troupe in Indianapolis. And they had a uh, show with three dances in it. And of course, we're finally getting out of lockdown. So everybody's masked and we're spread apart. But we are going to live stuff and it's great. And uh, one had music from John Adams which was very compelling musically, and the dancing was great. And then the final piece had your musical hero, six songs by Michael Buble. So ah. it was called Feeling Good. Well, how can you? How can, you can't go wrong with Michael Buble. Right. You know, I've complained before about Michael Buble, but after seeing that show, I realized, yeah, he sucks. He still sucks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, you're still, like, robbing the grave of better vocalists than you, my friend. But it, w- it was it was a lot of fun to see the dancers, you know, they're just bursting with energy after a year of being, you know, not performing in public or whatever. There's all these incredibly fit young people flinging themselves about. And um, there's certain dancers, I don't know anything about dance, where it's like, okay, you're going to look at me. You know, they've just got something going on where there's an intensity or an expressivity that it's just like, okay, I guess you're the one I'm going to watch because you're just radiating something that the other dancers as fine as you are or not. Anyway, it was good. And I, I survived the buble. But Joyce was really worried. He's like, do you want to go to this one? We've got like four performances, you know, the two of us can go to. And there's like three shows. Like, you know, two of us can go to two shows. Are you sure you want to face buble? I know you don't like buble. Is it going to be okay? Are you going to freak out? <laughs> I'm like, I'll make it, dear. It's fine. So I made it to the buble. I didn't have any breakdowns. But buble still sucks. Well, that reminds me, you know, it's time to start Christmas shopping for you. So... I can't wait. I'm looking yes. forward to the Michael Bublé boxed Christmas albums edition to send to you. That'll be a perfect present for you. Yeah, I just everything on vinyl. It's probably only three, four hundred bucks. Just, just knock yourself out. Oh, God, look the, the doorway. It's just called the doorway to hell. <laughs> this is my play stuff. What did, Walk he, do? On what did he ever do to you? 
I don't know. I just, I, I'm probably going to put back the, uh, Blue Blaze sketch I put on all those years ago when we talked about his vocal album and I went postal on him. So the other thing I saw was the second, or rather the final day of the Indianapolis Jazz Festival. Now there's no Chicago Jazz Fest this year. Broke my heart. Indianapolis has had one many years. They, they varied. Some years it's just been performances at different venues. Some years it's been more traditional, several acts in an open air area. For the day, and this one they had two days in Garfield Park, which is this kind of Southside Park in Indianapolis, from noon to like basically ten. So I saw parts of Sunday show. There was the Indianapolis High School Jazz Combo that did fine work, and then Amanda Gardier with Greg Ward. If you remember Altoism, I do. Pretty recently we did. Anyway, Greg is a uh, Chicago saxophone yes. player, so it was a two alto front line. And uh, Amanda Gardier is a very uh, thoughtful musician who put together, or I think, a pretty good jazz show. I mean, her husband, he plays guitar, and it was drums and bass, and then the two altos. And, you know, she's just, she writes clever, kind of riff-oriented tunes. They're a little bit out. They're a little bit challenging. I feel like there's more than a little minimalism in them. She has a, just a very pure, gorgeous tone, and then Ward was maybe a little rougher. They didn't get too much up the, the Greg Osby alleyway. And it was just, it was a good performance. And that was pretty much the end of the quote unquote jazz. I saw this group that had actually come to Crawfordsville and were playing downtown Crawfordsville called Pavel in Direct Contact, kind of a salsa band. He had a horn section for this, this concert that included Rob Dixon, who's a local saxophone hero in Indianapolis, just does everything massive technique just a, a monster on his horn and like four other horns and he and this uh a, a female vocalist and then percussionist and a bass player and the story that for me the, of the concert was is they did not quite have a sound system that could handle bass without it getting boomy and tubby in one note and so this bass player was one a little bit too loud and it was just kind of the mix wasn't quite there and you got the sense that maybe the horn players had seen the charts once before. I mean, they're, they're consummate professionals, but it was not quite locked in. And his big thing is he likes to do a cover of Careless Whispers in a salsa style, or a, a, I'm, I'm probably misspeaking. I'm not sure what the official, but, but you know, a style in, somewhere in that range. And it works pretty well. He did it in Crawfordsville. He did it there. And uh, Dixon played the indelible saxophone solo on alto. And did a great job with it. Hmm. I mean, you can see him reading the music. I have a feeling it was like pro- probably. I mean, Dixon probably could just do it from ear because he's so talented. But like, it's like, okay, how do I play this? He's kind of squinting. It's like I'll play it like this, and it sounds great. But but it's it's kind of a you know a Latin American version of, and I may be using that term incorrectly, of Careless Whispers. And they did some other stuff. But it was just kind of you know noisy, and he's like bouncing around. They set a tent up because it's Sunday was about like 88, so it was hot as fuck. Really, no one came to speak of to the early shows. By the evening, it was pretty full, but it was pretty quiet then. So after that, there was kind of a rap group that was in a rap soul mode. So you had your rappers, very conscious. One of those things is like, the lady would step up. It's like, I believe black people are good things. I do not believe they are bad things. I believe they are good things. Let me list some of the good things they are. And it's like, okay, very earnest. I'm absolutely with you on message. Not very excited by you verbally. And it's time for me to go get some dinner, but you know they they were they were good at it. I'm just not I'm not too much into rap, and it was you know. So I came back in time to see. Have you heard of Corey Henry at all? No. 
So he's a keyboard player. He used to be in Snarky Puppy. Oh. You remember Snarky yeah, Puppy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all these young people that decided the 70s are cool as fuck. And so he was, yeah, it was very much a kind of 70s funk soul set uh, with him getting hyper on the keys and, you know, a funky bass player and drums. And it was fine. He said he was playing all new music. It was cute. He's like, okay, I'm going to play stuff off the new album, okay? It's like, one, I don't know any of this dude's music. And two, it all sounds like stuff I heard when I was a kid. So uh-huh. I'm like, I, I guess it was new. You know, I mean, he was doing a fine job. And then the headliner... For Sunday night was Thundercat. So nice. I got to see me some Thundercat. He comes out with a bass bigger than I am, a great big five or six string bass, blonde hair. And he was in a trio, power trio with a, a synthesizer, keyboard player, and a, and a drummer. And man, you want to talk about technically adept. Mm. They were dangerously technically adept. But the same problem where he's singing, you know, Thundercat sings in that falsetto, and then he's playing these just amazing bass lines. I mean, the album we talked about drunk, he doesn't do a lot of, like, showboating. On this fucking concert, I mean, it was like Jaco Pastorius squared shit, just going down. Just every tune, he's playing thousands of notes, and, you know, he's amazing, but I can't hear them very well, because again, the sound system isn't quite world-class, and the notes are a little bit blending together and booming a bit, and then the balance between him and the drummer and the keyboardist is such that his vocals are kind of hard to pick out. So I stayed, you know, he started at 8.45. I stayed half an hour, 45 minutes, and headed back. It's like, I got an hour to get home, and I got to go to work Monday. But it was great to see him. Uh, but yeah, I, I miss the Chicago Jazz Fest. I hope it comes back next year, you know, when you get just a whole bunch of hardcore jazz for two or three days in a row, multiple shows in the afternoon at the same time, and just world-class music for in that idiom, where this was kind of like, well, jazz-adjacent stuff, because people don't like jazz that much stuff. Anyway, it was cool to go. So that's my book report, which is not a book report, on the Indianapolis Jazz Fest, the final day. Cool. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 226. You can download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, from Mixcloud, from Stitcher. You can stream it at All About Jazz, or if you want, you can point your browser at www.jazzbastard.com. If you'd like to contact us, just drop us a line at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com or look me up on Facebook or drop me a line at All About Jazz. Tune in next time as we look at albums by four vocalists released this year in 2021. We're going to look at albums by Champion Fulton, Sasha Dobson, Angela Wrigley, and Michael Stevenson. Till next time, take care.